This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from DSR. Each week, Norm and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. We hope you like the show. We'd love to hear your feedback as we continue to shape it moving forward. If you have any comments, please feel free to send us an email at podcasts at thedsrnetwork.com. That's podcasts, plural, at thedsrnetwork.com. Now on with the show. Well, Norm, it's been another action-packed week, and I think it's safe to say that this was one of those shows where in setting it up, we were trying to figure out how to do justice to all the different topics that we need to address today. I think hopefully our listeners will be pleased with at least the kind of clips and and intros that we're doing on the words that matter the most. I can't help but feel like we have to start. It's so hard to find one place to start, Norm. I'm sure you feel the same way with something happening. It feels like almost every millisecond. But I have to start with last week and Rove v. Wade. And we alluded to some of this in our members-only discussion last week. But I do think that it's worth revisiting some words that do matter. Certainly, there's been much that we said last week about Susan Collins and some of her words about feeling duped by Justice Kavanaugh. But I think this was something that caught my attention during Justice Amy Comey Barrett's confirmation hearing. It got a lot of attention at the time, but I do feel like it's a nice clip where she describes, where at least Senator Amy Klobuchar, in questioning Justice Barrett, describes whether Roe is overturnable based on super precedent. As Richard Fallon from Harvard said, Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased, but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. It just means that it doesn't fall on the small handful of cases like Marbury versus Madison and Brown versus the board that no one questions anymore. So as you can hear, what started out to be a little bit of a back and forth banter with, uh, I think, Senator Klobuchar reminding us that she could have been a justice or she still could be a justice herself, but is not in the position to answer these questions. And then at that time, Judge Amy Comey Barrett was in the position and obviously is in the important position now with leading to the decision that was made recently in the Supreme Court with discussing whether or not Roe v. Wade was a super precedent. That is, there was such an established kind of jurisprudence around the case itself that like Brown versus Board of Education, it kind of was put in a very special category of cases that just could not be overturned. And the back and forth, as we heard in the clip, leads Justice Barrett now, who obviously voted the same way, to basically say the fact that there was so much questioning about Roe v. Wade means that it's not a super precedent. Norm, give me your thoughts and reactions in light of what we heard then. And then I am curious, I've heard now Kamala Harris in many different settings with the vice president specifically saying that she knew they were lying then. She feels like her votes at the time that were against these justices was not only the right votes, which I completely agree with, but that she feels like the rest of the Senate was duped in a way that she felt was is going to, we're going to pay the price for the rest of our lives. And I think she's been playing an interesting figure this week and having to appear as the chief defender of the administration's response. But we also know that just recently, President Biden has also endorsed a carve out in the filibuster 
for this specific issue, abortion, and has already also said through his press secretary and other surrogates that he is not in favor of expanding the court. So just react thinking about Barrett's words at the time, the issue of a super precedent, and how the administration, the words that they're using now, and what you think could happen. So I think it's important to say, Kavita, that nobody was duped. Everybody knew exactly what the position was of each of these justices in their confirmation hearings, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett. Remember that Barrett had signed a petition going back saying that Roe v. Wade was an abomination, that Donald Trump said he would never pick a justice who wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade. We knew their positions. The only question was whether they would do it in one fell swoop or do it gradually. And we know in this decision that John Roberts wanted them to do it gradually. He wanted a glide path in part because he knew what kind of public explosion would take place. The opinion was an angry opinion. It was not a well-reasoned opinion. It was a disingenuous opinion in the way in which it misused history. But five justices went along. I want to add right now, Kavita, that we, we have another ruling this morning, one that we fully expected, which is EPA, West Virginia versus EPA. They have hamstrung the Biden administration and future administrations saying that the Environmental Protection Agency has extremely constrained authority to regulate carbon emissions. It's not just something that affects climate. This is going to have an impact, and we had a previous decision on whether the CDC could step in when it comes to a pandemic. And what we have here with the abortion decision, you know, frankly, if the court had simply said, we embrace Dobbs, which is Mississippi's law with a 15-week rather than a 24-, 26-week limitation, it wouldn't have created a, a huge firestorm. All of the opinions, some of which we'll discuss as well, the religious ones, reflects a court where now you've got five justices and on most issues, six justices, where it is, we don't even need to use legal reasoning anymore. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And we've never in our lifetimes had a court like this. You'd have to go back to the Taney court, the Dred Scott decision, the Plessy decision to see this kind of arrogance. We had a little bit of it leading up to Franklin Roosevelt's term, but the rigidity is amazing. And I, you know, on the abortion issue, there's one other opinion that doesn't seem related, but that very much is, which is an opinion done about. Indian law could be applied on reservations. We have more than a century of law and precedent. And of course, the mistreatment of Indians, of Native Americans over all of this time, but basically on their reservations, they're sovereign. And Neil Gorsuch has been a strong defender of uh, Native American rights in this case. Five justices basically threw out precedent and history. Now, why is that relevant here? Because it had nothing to do with abortion, because they now fear that we will see abortions performed on reservations where a Native American law applies. They are going all out to transform America overnight, and it is a radical court that is uh, 
clear and present danger to our liberties. Let me add in, so I'll just do a little summary because I think the case on the EPA, what struck me, and let me just give listeners because there have been so much that we have seen coming out of the court that it might get lost. And we'll talk about the prayer decision in a minute. It basically, in the case, it's which started last year, a federal court ruling left open kind of this possibility that po- policies could put caps on greenhouse gas emissions and that that could be allowed. Just to be clear, that has that actual policy, such as putting such a cap, has not actually happened. But in anticipation of doing that, a collection of Republican attorneys general and coal companies, no big surprise, kind of banded together to appeal the ruling. What's very unusual is that the decision, as I'm kind of looking at it, it sets a precedent for future actions versus looking at an existing rule. I emphasize that just because, Norm, to your point, I'm not you know anywhere near the Supreme Court scholar that others might be, but it's rare that you see something that's done kind of as a precedent for future actions rather than something that is in response to an actual existing rule, like those other cases that we've talked about with the CDC and et cetera. And then just the second thing, I want to say something about, there have been so many conversations about eight weeks, 15 weeks, 16 weeks. Majority of women who get pregnant have no idea what their weeks are. And even I, as a doctor, using like their last menstrual period, which is kind of the best until we get an ultrasound on the woman, we really just do not have that information because so many women have irregular periods. So many women do not remember when their last menstrual period was because life is hard and busy and we just don't keep track like that. So this has become the most, I would say, arbitrary way to limit access to health, period, that I have witnessed in my lifetime. And I shudder to think I was in medical school kind of right when GRID, gay-related infectious disease, was coming into the fore as HIV and then defined as AIDS. And we saw so many mechanisms back then to limit access to treatment because, you know, at the time, still currently, probably much of the religious right had perceptions of homosexual populations and and the Ryan White Act. There were a number of things that Congress stepped in to do to ensure access This is absolutely reminiscent of those times, except now we have a Supreme Court and a Congress that won't do anything about any of these decisions. And I'm stunned. And and I'll just say that talking with physician colleagues, so there's now very active recruitment in states that do not have these trigger laws or any of the 23 states that will have, obviously, pretty strict bans. That leaves the remainder of states where we're all trying to kind of band together I hate to kind of dump on this, but it's been underwhelming is a kind word about the Biden administration response, because there's just very little clarity on things like Norm. Can I prescribe medication abortions for someone in Texas? I have the ability to do that across state lines. Federal government would say that based on the FDA and Secretary Javier Becerra would say that that's appropriate. States are throwing up all sorts of red flags around it. And there is just no clarity. And when there is no clarity, the default for even a very kind of considerate healthcare professional is to minimize risk. And that minimization of risk is going to involve, again, limiting access to care. I know we have a lot to get through. We want to get through January 6th and Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, and we want to get through other Supreme Court decisions. But I will close by just saying that a very real scenario that's happening in Texas today, a woman, for example, who is 18 weeks pregnant, where there is still a fetal heartbeat detected, 
She's bleeding. She has vaginal bleeding. It is very obviously a miscarriage by any definition. But because of that existing heartbeat, the procedure that could be used can be perceived as a, quote, abortion. And it is literally interpretation of most hospitals inside of Texas that that woman would have to get admitted and wait until there is no heartbeat detected, at which point that mother is likely septic, could be dead. And that's literally the moment when a team could step in to intervene with life-saving interventions. And that's actually what's on the line. So I emphasize that point because it's so easy to kind of say 15 weeks or this many weeks, women don't know. This is not something that you want to be up for discussion in terms of whether or not a healthcare professional can intervene. And then finally, I don't see or have faith that the Department of Justice and this, you know, the HHS and Department of Defense and people who administer healthcare, the VA, all of these departments, I have very little evidence that they have coordinated a, a, a response together that gives me a safety net. And th- for that reason, I am quite angry that we knew this was coming and we feel like Biden got caught by surprise because his administration has put out a website, reproductiverights.gov, that is a, just a restatement of the current law. The ACA gives you oral contraceptives. Here's what the FDA does for medication abortions. And thank you very much. That doesn't do much of anything. You know, as a non-physician and a uh, non-woman, but, you know, I saw this woman who was uh, Democrats for Life on television uh, a lot in the last week and who kept saying, you know, the perception of Democrats is that they want abortions to continue right up until the ninth month. And it, you know, I thought first, nobody is going to want an abortion unless it's a medical necessity late term. And these are wrenching for people. And I saw some video of Debbie Reynolds years ago talking about what it was like before Roe and how she had, uh, she got pregnant. She was thrilled. She wanted to get pregnant. And a few months in, it turns out that the fetus was dead inside her body and they would not do anything. They told her she's going to have to wait until it gets expelled. And then it happened to her a second time. And we know that women are going to die under these circumstances. We know, just as you said, you're going to have physicians who are scared to death that they're going to be prosecuted or lose their licenses. And their oath is going to be up against their careers and their lives themselves. And we just have to say, people are going to die as a consequence of this, and their blood is on the hands of the Supreme Court. And the last part of my rant is, these are people who have hijacked the term pro-life. We keep saying it over and over again. This is not pro-life. It is, as Barney Frank said, its life begins at conception and ends at birth. They're doing nothing in these states where they're cracking down the most to provide any help, including adoption services, help for women and children and babies when they're young. This is just beyond the pale. Now, with that, we can make a transition, although no doubt we will come back to this again and again. So we know uh, that we've had a lot of things happening this week, including, of course, bombshells, multiple ones, with a surprise hearing that took place just this past week in this week that nobody anticipated the members of the committee were back home for the July 4th recess. They came back 
And on Tuesday, Cassidy Hutchinson, who is 26 years old, but had moved to a top position of power as a the top aide to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. We had seen her earlier in video in depositions, but she came in person to testify before the January 6th committee about her experiences in the White House leading up to and on January 6th. So here she is testifying about a conversation she overheard backstage during Trump's rally on the ellipse. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Well, that was one of many pretty dramatic moments. I actually thought it was the most significant that what you have is a president who knew people at this rally who were going to basically invade the Capitol were armed. They were told, and they had been told, and the Secret Service had been told and told him that violence was going to, very likely going to take place. He didn't want the magnetometers there because the visuals of people going around the magnetometers, which he would have uh, permitted, were horrific. And then he knew that they were uh, then going to march up to the Capitol with their weapons. And he wanted that to happen because he said, they're not going to hurt me. And we know that he insisted on going up to the Capitol. And you ask yourself, why would Donald Trump then want to go up to the Capitol? And what I've sussed out of that is this. He had two things in mind. One was he was going to lead this angry armed mob right into the House chamber and basically say to those members of the House and Senate, look, these are really fine people behind me, but they're furious that you are going to steal the election and turn it over to somebody who didn't win. If you are reasonable about this, all these people will applaud you. But if you're not, I can't control what they're going to do to intimidate them. And if that didn't work, remember, we had a lot of these people who had cuffs, who had ties. They would handcuff and march out Democrats, march them out of the chamber and let the Republicans do what he wanted done. This is the most direct evidence that Donald Trump not only wanted Mike Pence hanged, and we had more of that with Cassidy Hutchinson as well, but was perfectly content to have members of Congress killed in order to achieve his political objectives. This is monstrous, and yet it's not clear to me what it will move on the needle at the Justice Department, which had a New York Times article today basically saying they were stunned at this hearing and that they had nothing in their subpoenas or other evidence about Cassidy Hutchinson. I don't know what's going on here. I agree. Buddy. Did you see that there, you know, this intimation? Well, I, I have two things in response. Number one, it wasn't lost on me. The number of well-known kind of media, not left nor right kind of commentators, as well as tweets that went out that raised and kind of concurred with some of the doubt, you know, we should see some corroboration of the testimony. No Secret Service official has so far come forward with a public statement to them, which the Secret Service had a response that if they are called, that they will they will deliver those witnesses, which then again to your point begs the question. So the Department of Justice has not been pressing for such corroboration. Will they? What's the timeline on that? 
the whole thing uh, kind of transpiring, I, I found myself having a very like uh, moment where I thought, what an amazing, you know, 26 years old, like, obviously, she changed her lawyers prior to, to the uh, testimony, which was a good move on her part. And also, clearly is probably been physically, she, she must have security detail. I find it fascinating at how quickly, you know, the House uh, GOP Judiciary Committee how Trump himself was obviously going to, you know, fake news her to to the bits. But I just think that this Republican kind of smear campaign against her, which we could fully expect, has completely like fallen apart, not just because of her testimony. But I do think Liz Cheney did a nice job of this like interplay with kind of other moments. And what was helpful was not only Cassidy Hutchison naming names, but it just, it all maps together. We had that incredible audio clip, Norm, from one of the Secret Service police or, or one of the Capitol Police, one of the police with a back and forth that we had not heard before, where exactly to your point, you know, we've got people here, individuals here with AR-15s, individuals with basically flagpoles with like spears at the end of them. And so this isn't Cassidy Hutchison, like kind of making up Hutchinson making up some crazy, like elaborate propaganda, which unfortunately we also know Trump did to create fake electors. So I do think that there's a real important kind of follow-up question of, you know, who, what, when, and where, and we feel like there will be some clear state indictments. And that seems like, but it's not clear where this goes for Trump from here. And the only thing I, just as a little side kind of note, it's funny because Hutchinson is kind of being put on this mantle and she is very brave. It's not lost on me that kind of she had full faith in Donald Trump. I mean, there was this very like kind of moment where I thought, you know, she interned for Ted Cruz. Yes, she's young, she's, but she's not stupid. And so she knew and, and I, I can't help but wonder how many others are out there. There must be many that kind of fall into this category young staff, because that White House was very young. They, they just did not have the bench talent to get seasoned recruits of any caliber. So how many of these others are there? And is there some coordination? I can't also help but wonder, are there some Republicans behind the scenes that are helping to prop this up? Oh, and then the final thing I will say that, I don't know if this struck you, the text exchanges from Laura Ingraham to Mark Meadows, I knew that there was this obvious, like explicit relationship, no shock to me whatsoever between kind of some of the more popular media hosts and Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, et cetera. But the level to which you could tell that she had involvement with Mark Meadows was one that I don't think I've seen before. So I'm just curious because there were so many of those aha moments, but these might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells didn't catch people's eyes but are worth kind of probing. Like, why why are we not talking about kind of relationships between chiefs of staff to White House members and like members of the press who are offering advice and, and clearly trying to kind of sway the direction? Uh, obviously, it didn't work. So, you know, there, there are so many things raised here. First is it's Ingram, it's Sean Hannity also communicating directly um, multiple times with Trump. Fox is not a news network. It is a full-on Pravda. It's basically an arm of the Trump White House and of the Republican cult at this point. But the lengths to which everybody has gone to discredit Cassidy Hutchinson, saying that she was a junior staffer with no responsibility, 
somehow Jim Jordan and every other and Kevin McCarthy and every other prominent member of Congress had her cell phone. She was texting and talking to them, which doesn't happen with a junior person. We know that she was the right arm of Mark Meadows through all of this. But it also has frustrated me that the focus has turned to discredit her to one comment, the only one that was hearsay, basically, which was her conversation with the deputy chief of staff. This is an unprecedented thing. A Secret Service officer who is named to be a deputy chief of staff, which shows how much the Secret Service agents were working with and for Trump, not just to protect him, but for his political interests. And we know from some of the texts that have been released from the Secret Service that there are plenty of them inside who were cheering on the insurrection. They don't have a lot of credibility. But the idea that nobody there talked to, nobody in the committee had talked to these Secret Service people, they have. They've got more than just what Cassidy Hutchinson said. The House Republicans on the Judiciary Committee have tweeted out multiple times, it was all hearsay, that members of the Judiciary Committee don't even know what hearsay is, tells you an awful lot, but that so many in the mainstream media focused on this instead of on what she said about Trump's involvement in a violent insurrection and encouraging armed seditionists to go to the Capitol to murder people, tells you yet again that we have such failure in our mainstream media. They've learned nothing. We continue to march towards an autocracy, and they are helping it along by basically echoing the messages that they want instead of focusing on what the real dangers are. And it's a clear and present danger to us. And of course, they'll be the first ones to go. It's bizarre. I no longer try to kind of predict like the direction of some of these races. But if you look at where the Senate is shaking out, and by the way, I, I think, you know, Michael Bennett, who I would have said is firmly like in the clear to win his, his reelect as a senator, I think O'Day puts a big kink in that. And you do the numbers, and I don't care what anybody has said publicly, every Republican is going to toe a line because they'll do the math as well. If they can run the House, they can run the Senate. Then they're in looking eventually at running the White House. Then they've got all the power they need, Norm, not just to allow the Supreme Court to basically kind of overturn civil liberties, but they have a way to codify them to your point of, of not just promoting an autocracy, but they will soon have all of that. And and I'll, I even with Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, I, I was it wasn't lost on me that, you know, there's this moment in history where somebody at some point, Norm, is going to look back. Maybe they'll be even listening to this podcast, trying to understand what was happening at this moment in time. And they're going to hear people like us talking about it. And they're just going to sit there and wonder, why weren't there riots in the streets? Why were we not trying to, you know, what more could we have done? And I find myself kind of going to bed each night and unsettled by how to answer that question. You know, I, I have a five-year-old daughter and I think it's not just Roe v. Wade. It's everything that we've talked about. It's a fact that I had to I actually had to explain to her why we had a president who they now feel like we need to have hearings about whether he incited a riot. And it's stunning. And I almost feel like it stunned me into this frozen kind of, I can't figure out how to get out of it. So hopefully, 
I'm hoping that some of our smart listeners and some of the people that you and I are friends with, that we can all find some way to promote action further beyond the obvious. People need to vote. We need the turnout. We need fundraising. But there's got to be more that we can do. Your idea, I had not been in favor of expanding the court just because I thought to what end I'm now on board. I, I am now in the moment of norm. All ideas are good ideas. And just to state like public lands, federal lands not being used for abortion, the idea that there are so many who have kind of given up on like the Department of Justice mounting an incredible case against the president, those are no longer acceptable to me. <laughs> I just they, I, I find everything, I, I mean, I know civil suits against uh, ex-presidents are, are something that is not necessarily easy to execute, but why not try? Why are we not taking every tactic possible? So uh, two more comments. One is I'm furious with the Senate. They're out till July 11th. Doing what? Um, <laughs> Nothing. You know, <laughs> doing we've got, we have dozens of judicial slots to be filled. We have a number of key executive positions, some of which have not even got a nominee, others that have been blocked in the Senate. If the Senate goes to the Republicans, then the door will be slammed on judges and executive uh, nominees. You know from your service uh, in the executive branch that what happens in the third year of a presidency is a lot of people leave. They're burned out. They're looking for other things in their careers. And if you don't have the people below them ready to move up, and you got to go through another vetting process and another confirmation, you're going to have a huge jolt in your ability to actually govern. And getting these positions filled, the ones at the second, third, and fourth levels now is critical. And we know if you don't get the judges done, there'll be no more of that, and you're going to get even more radical judges. That's one thing that just absolutely infuriates me at this point. And we really do face an existential moment here. And if we can't rally the public to understand what that threat is, one of the things I'd like to see, if the Justice Department doesn't move forward to prosecute uh, Donald Trump, I think it would be time for the House to impeach him for a third time. because. It's really important that he not be able to run again. And a lot of my friends who are law professors and uh, former prosecutors say, well, they can raise these suits in, uh, on the 14th Amendment because he's uh, clearly been involved in sedition and the, the states themselves can say that he can't be on the ballot. That'll end up in the Supreme Court and the court, this court, I'm sure, will let him do anything that he wants. We've got to start looking at measures that are far different from what we would do if business as usual prevailed, and this is not business as usual. And I guess with that, it's probably a good time uh, to make our segue out of the free element of our podcast and see about uh, doing something for members. And we want to thank you for joining us. It would really be helpful, as Kavita said at the start of this, we're relaunching the show. We would love you to rate, review, and subscribe uh, to the feed on your favorite podcast player. We'd also like you to share the episode with your friends on social media and wherever you can. If you like this episode and want more of our conversation, become a member of the DSR Network. Get the bonus segment where we talk about what the media is saying about the January 6th hearing and about 
the Supreme Court ruling on the First Amendment when it comes to religion. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Kotnor. The producer of Words Matter is Grant Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on July 8th. See you then.